You're listening to Plenary Session. Today we have a special bonus episode of Plenary Session. The other day I gave a lecture to the OHSU School of Medicine in which I gave them an introduction to cancer drug policy. That lecture in almost its entirety will greet you today. I hope you find it interesting. But first, a plug. If you like this episode and you like this podcast, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. If you have the time, write a review. It it really goes a long way. Follow us at plenary underscore session on Twitter or email us plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. What are we doing right? What could we be doing better? And what do you want to hear about in the future? We are happy to field your requests. Hi everybody, I'm Vinay Prasad. I'm an associate professor here in oncology department. In this lecture, I'm gonna take you through an introduction to cancer drug policy. In terms of disclosure, I'm the author of this book on medical reversal, which is why I'm so very rich. Uh, We're doing a subsequent project that's funded by the, I don't like the laughter, uh, that's funded by the Laura and John Arnold Foundation on medical reversal. We run a podcast, this is not conflict. This is free advertising. This is a podcast we're running called Plenary Session. We're on the iTunes store. I'm on Twitter at this handle, and I apologize to you in advance if you follow that. Okay, I want to open with two slides to frame the issue and then take you through some points about cancer drug policy. Here's the first point. The blue line shows you the median monthly cost of a new anti-cancer drug in America every five years from 1975 to the present day. And some, of these, some people will be listening to this without the luxury of the slides, so I'll explain. The blue line shows what cancer drugs once upon a time cost about $100 per month of therapy. It was relatively slow growth until the late 1990s and the advent of paclitaxel, which was the first blockbuster billion dollar drug. Then it just takes off to about $10,000 per month today, per month of therapy of a novel anti-cancer drug coming to market. Now contrast that with the red line. This is the median monthly household income adjusted for inflation over time. It's just a flat line. We've had relative income stagnation in this country despite the growth of great wealth, and that contrasts dramatically with the price of anti-cancer drugs. The other piece of information I think that has to frame the whole discussion is that so often in cancer medicine, we talk about the exceptional cases, the drugs that are truly transformative and work very, very well, the Gleevex of the world. Um, But we cannot forget the average cancer drug. This is a graph prepared by Foho and colleagues from JAMA Otolaryngology. It is 71 consecutive drugs approved for solid tumors between 2002 and 2014. This is the median improvement in overall survival comparing the two arms of the study. This is progression-free survival, which we'll talk a little bit about. The average cancer drug coming to market improved survival 2.1 months. So even though we talk about exceptional cases, if you look across all drugs, you will have to conclude that our average drug is quite marginal. Okay, so in this talk, I'm going to hit on these points, I hope. I wanna talk about cost, profit, and competition in the cancer drug space. I wanna talk about benefit and how we assess value. I wanna talk about the US Food and Drug Administration and how they decide what drugs should be marketed in this country. I want to present a thought experiment that we recently published in Nature Reviews Clinical Oncology, and finally give you some solutions to the crushing cost of cancer drugs. So cost, profit, and competition. 
These are the annual earnings in just one year of the best-selling anti-cancer drugs. In this particular year, which is 2013, it's already a few years old, rituximab, the Roche Genentech drug, pulled in nearly $8 billion a year. Avastin, another Roche Genentech, $7 billion. This is a drug that's used in several major tumor types and almost universally improves survival one to two months when it does improve survival at all. Trastuzumab, almost six and a half billion. Imatinib, a drug once thought not that it wasn't even gonna be profitable, was pulling down $4.7 billion per year in global sales. So the point here is that it wasn't that long ago where the only way you would get a blockbuster medication on the market was to make a cholesterol drug or high blood pressure drug, something that all Americans or many Americans had. Now you can get a blockbuster billion dollar a year drug with a very small target population. We hear a lot and see a lot in our everyday lives of a well-functioning marketplace where competition or many available options will lower drug prices. We do not see so much of that in cancer medicine. In fact, I cannot think of a single example where next-in-class molecules for a particular target actually have resulted in the lower price. Obviously, generics can result in lower price, multiple generic companies, but I have not know of any example where next-in-class drugs do. And here's one example. Nilotinib, dasatinib, and imatinib are all inhibitors of BCR able. This is the price of imatinib per day between 2004 and 2014 over time. And people who aren't seeing the slide will note that it started about $90 a day, and it has just slowly and steadily escalated to over $200 a day as of 2014. I show you this graph, and plotted on this graph are the points of time where nilotinib was approved and dasatinib approved, which offered direct competition to imatinib in the frontline CML space. So even though there's competition, you see there's absolutely no reduction in price, and actually all of these drugs have kind of marched up lockstep together. One of the off-sided reasons for the high price of cancer drugs is that these prices are necessary to sustain the research and development portfolios of pharmaceutical companies. This is a figure that I believe we published in our Nature Reviews paper, a, a big review on cost of cancer drugs that shows for the 10 largest pharmaceutical companies, what was the R&D expenditure in billions of dollars, the sales and marketing expenditure, the red bar, and the profit, the green bar. And I think the takeaway point here is that the green bar and the red bar are a lot bigger than the R&D spending bar. Okay, this is just one quarter profit margins of the largest pharmaceutical companies. And the takeaway point here is that the profit margins went between 10 and 43%. The profit margins in the pharmaceutical industry are second only, I think, to oil and natural gas in terms of profit on revenue quarter after quarter. So for people who say drug development is risky, I would say I'm sure that is the case. If you have a small biotech company and you're trying to bring one drug to market, that is a very risky proposition. That drug may or may not succeed. But when you're talking about a large pharmaceutical firm and a portfolio of candidate compounds where you're running many, many compounds, many, many trials, and taking drugs that have been successful and testing them in many, many other tumors, and you routinely have profit margins in the double digits, I think it's fair to say it is not as risky because you are routinely making a profit. What is the connection between the price of anti-cancer drugs and what they deliver? We've studied this a couple of times. This was one paper we published in 2015 in JAM Oncology called Five Years of Cancer Drug Approvals, Innovation, Efficacy, and Costs. We looked at the price and we asked if several factors would predict price. Here's the first thing we asked. If a drug is novel, if it's the first drug ever to hit a target in cells, does it cost more than the drug that's next in class? 
So we took a set of FDA approvals, and the first thing we found was 40% of cancer drugs were novel, operated via a new mechanism of action, and 60% were next in class. So most new cancer drugs are next in class. Me Too drugs. We found there's no difference in the price between these two pieces of the pie. I think making a novel drug is more risky and more difficult than making a next in class drug. This is like exploring uncharted seas. This is like refining a city map. You kind of have a starting point. The next thing we looked at, uh, cancer drugs are approved usually uh, for one of three reasons. One, something called response rate, or they shrink tumors in a fraction of cancer patients. And you, there are lots of different ways to measure shrinkage. Um, Progression-free survival, they delay the time until tumors get bigger on scans in cancer patients in a randomized study. And overall survival, they improve overall survival or quality of life. Those are roughly the three big categories. And so we asked ourselves, do one of these three categories of drug approvals have higher costs than the other two? Do drugs that improve survival or quality of life cost more than drugs that merely shrink cancer or delay the time until cancer gets bigger? And when I say shrink and delay the time till it gets bigger, there's an arbitrary line in the sand that's the definition of progression. It's not any bigger, it's 20% bigger than the smallest it ever was, or 30% smaller. We've picked some arbitrary cutoffs. Okay, so what we actually found here was although we expected drugs that improve survival to cost the most, that was not the case. Drugs that improve survival and drugs that improve PFS had about $110,000 per year of treatment, and drugs that merely were known to shrink tumors were about $160,000 per year of treatment. They cost the most. So that is a bit counterintuitive. And then here's what we did. For the drugs that improve progression-free survival and for the drugs that improve overall survival, we plotted the percent improvement in that endpoint on the x-axis, and we plotted the drug price on the y-axis, and we've conducted linear regression. So what we're testing here is how much of the variability in drug price is explained by the variability in how much the drug improves survival. Or in other words, if a drug really makes a big difference in survival, does that cost a lot more than the drug that makes a, a modest or marginal difference? And what you'd expect to see is a line tightly fitting the points, sloping upward. You see a slight slope to this line, but you actually see a very poor correlation. Actually, very little of the variability is explained by how good the drug is. And I think these beta coefficients are negative. So I think it's actually not statistically significant. We conclude in this paper that the cost of cancer drugs is not explained by the novelty, which we took as a surrogate for the cost of R&D, because it's harder to make novel drugs. It's not explained by the regulatory endpoint used for approval. And it's not explained by how much you improve that endpoint. So in fact, we conclude the only thing that explains it is what the market will tolerate. And the market is deeply broken. Uh, last year, we published this paper, which was covered by Gina Collada in the New York Times and got a lot of attention, where we tried to refine the estimate of how much it costs in research and development to bring one of these drugs to market. The popular figure that was cited was $2.6 billion from the Tufts Medical Group. That $2.6 billion outlay was how much the Tufts Group said that it cost to bring a drug to market. Of the $2.6 billion, 1.2 billion, or like almost half of it, was lost earnings on capital. What do I mean? If I ask you to develop a drug and it costs you $10 this year to develop the drug, it costs you the $10 plus whatever you would lose on that $10 had you invested it in a checking account or a mutual fund, right? So they want to factor in the lost earnings on that capital had it been invested differently, which is fair. But they picked a 10.5% interest rate 
for that lost earnings on capital, which even Warren Buffett says is unrealistic. So we used a lower rate. I think we used 7% in our paper. And we basically picked companies, unlike the big companies, we picked companies that had no drugs on the US market that were able to successfully bring one drug to the US market. And we added up all of their SEC returns, how much they had paid for R&D for as many years as possible during the preclinical development phase. And we divided by the number of drugs they got approved. And here's what we found. We found that the median price to bring a drug to market was about $750 million. And that's including the lost earnings on capital. Uh, we also looked at how much revenue these companies had made on average four years once the drugs were on the market. And that's the light blue bar. And the revenue was many, many fold higher. I believe it was like $7 billion was the average. I think $6.7 billion in the paper. It's been a while since I've checked that. Um, what's the point here? One thing people will say is, you've only focused on the winners, the companies that brought a drug to market. But I will say that these 10 companies brought 10 drugs to market, but they had at least 44 drugs in clinical testing. And that clinical success rate is actually comparable to a prior estimate that was put out by the Tufts group. The second thing I'd say is, I think this is a fairer representation of the cost of bringing a drug to market because we actually named the drugs we've studied and the companies that we've looked at and the years we've looked at. The Tufts group is bound by confidentiality and the analysis is totally opaque. And I think that the ultimate answer is if it is a reason why the cost of drugs has to be so high, you do not need to estimate the cost of R&D. It is a known quantity. The industry could open up their books and allow independent audit. I suspect they won't want to do that. And the last thing I'd say is R&D is actually something you can write off on taxes. So we did not give them the tax break for how much R&D they were spending, but they're getting a tax break here too. So it's to some degree subsidized by the taxpayer. Benefits and value. When we talk about value in medicine in any space, it is something like this equation. You take into account the benefits a drug provides and you discount that by the cost and toxicities that intervention provides. That's fundamentally what value is. And probably the most elegant and formal way to do this is to calculate a dollar per quality adjusted life year. So in other words, if I spend a, this much money, how many quality adjusted life years would I get from this particular intervention? And then you can rank different interventions of diverse mechanism of action, diverse things, and you can pay for those interventions with the best bang for their buck. And that's essentially what they do in countries like the United Kingdom through NICE. So I wanted to start by showing you the best drug. This is probably the best drug that's been invented in the last 20 years in cancer medicine, 30 years now, imatinib. I suspect you all have heard of it. Because <laughs> you go to school here, it's probably the only thing you hear. Um, this is a great study that came out of Sweden, I think a year and a half ago. And what it shows you here is if you were diagnosed with CML and you were a man who was age 55, this is the year you were diagnosed with a condition. Your life expectancy is measured by the yellow line. If you were diagnosed in 1970 and you're 55 years old and you were told you had CML, you had about three to four years to live. The blue line, the dotted blue line, is the average life expectancy of a man who was 55 without CML in, in Sweden. So if I was 55 in Sweden in 1970, I was gonna live 20 plus years, but because of this diagnosis, I'm down to three to four. Okay, that's not so good, but something happened towards the end of the 1990s that has dramatically closed this gap, and that is Gleevec. But what year was Gleevec approved? Does anyone know? It came out 2000, 2001. But the survival benefit started to go up in the years prior to when it was approved. 
Does anyone know why that's the case? Ah, hypothesis. Were people getting the drug before it was approved? Answer, no. Okay, that's a good hypothesis. But they were not getting the drug before it was approved. It was in clinical trials here, the phase one in 1999, I think, at OHSU, and had very little uptake across the nation of Sweden at the time. Look closely, what is the x-axis? Year of diagnosis. So why is the survival for someone who was diagnosed in 1997 going up if the drug didn't come out till 2000? The person diagnosed in 1999 was still alive when the drug came out and started to take it, although not everyone was. That's why it's not corrected all the way. Some people had passed away. But of the people who had survived that long, they took the drug and it improved their outcome so much. What it actually shows you is the drug is so good that people who were diagnosed in the years preceding who happened to live long enough to get a chance at the drug suddenly had a dramatic transformation in life expectancy. It really gives further credence to how effective the drug is. I cite that because a very nicely done cost-effective NESS analysis in the JNCI found that in 2016 dollars, imatinib cost $72,000 to add one year of quality life back to someone. Keep in mind, imatinib is a transformational drug. The average drug is quite average. And when you look at the average drug, if imatinib is $71,000 per quality, the average drug is way, way higher. Pertuzumab, something like $400,000 per quality adjusted life year. Regorafenib, $900,000 per quality adjusted life year. And a flibercept for colorectal cancer is infinity because it costs more and is no better than two alternatives. So these are drugs we're actually paying for all the time in this country. And to put it in perspective, even right-wing health economists think that like the upper bounds of what a society can spend is like $200,000 per quality. And here we're spending way, way more than that. We're approaching the million dollar mark. Meanwhile, this group published that if you looked at all of the cost effectiveness analyses that were in the Tuft data set in the hematologic malignancies, they find that many of these drugs are actually, some are cost savings, some have $20,000 per quality. I point out that Gleevec is here, this line, and they have so many analyses of drugs in hematologic malignancies that are better than Gleevec, I find that too good to be true. Because Gleevec is the best drug, and it's priced comparably to what all these other drugs are priced. And yet these other drugs are somehow delivering better value than Gleevec? I find that hard to believe. So I would say there might be a problem with your analysis if, for an indefinite therapy, you have a better dollar per quality than imatinib in CML. Because there's no way your drug is better. Okay. But the situation, I think, with cancer drugs may be even worse than this situation because most of the cancer drugs that we have and use probably do not work as well in the real world than they do in clinical trials. This is a graph of the percentage of patients with cancer who are over the age of 65, 70, and 75. That's the tall bar. Cancer is a disease of the elderly, and the majority of people in this country with cancer are over the age of 65. The short bar shows you the percent of patients enrolled in pivotal trials for FDA cancer drugs that are over the age of 65, 70, or 75. So the trials that we're using for drug approval, do they enroll patients of the actual age of cancer patients in America? No. They disproportionately enroll younger people. And younger people may have different risk-benefit balances. As you get older and frailer and have more comorbidities, a drug that had a two-month survival benefit when you could push the dose in a patient with no comorbidities may have less than two-month survival benefit. At some point, it may even tip over and be a net negative. And that's what Stacy Dusitzina and Hannah Sanoff showed in this nice analysis from Medicare. On the left, I show you serafinib against placebo for liver cancer. This is for metastatic or unresectable liver cancer, cancer that is beyond what can be transplanted. 
The survival benefit of the drug that is FDA approved for this cancer over placebo, the median survival on placebo was eight months and the median survival on the drug was 11 months, a three month survival benefit led to FDA drug approval. So I think three months is a marginal benefit under ideal circumstances. That's the regulatory approval trial. But this trial enrolled patients who were the fittest of the fit. They were, had very good liver function. That's not always representative of the average liver patient. The other thing is, as we started to use this drug in the real world, a lot of my patients would come and throw it at me and say, I will never take this. It makes me feel lousy. It's an awful drug. So they looked at the Medicare data set and they asked, what happens to serafinib when used for liver cancer among all the patients on Medicare who are typically over the age of 65? And they plot their survival with this blue line and the median survival is like three to four months. So the point I wanna make here first is, if you take serafinib in the Medicare data set, your survival is half of what your survival was taking placebo in the registration study. This is only explained by the fact that these patients are so dissimilar from average cancer patients that people taking sugar pill on the clinical trial live twice as long as people taking the active drug in the real world. And the next thing is if you compare them against a propensity score match subgroup, which is an analytic technique to match groups in an observational data set, which I won't explain because it'll take a long time, uh, you find there's no difference. Suggesting that a marginal drug under ideal circumstances may have no benefit under real world circumstances. Somebody online always makes the argument with me that, uh, well, this is only looks marginal because the survival is so poor, and if the survival were long, it would look great, because then it would be like eight years versus 11 years, that'd be great. And I was like, okay, yeah, that's true, but unfortunately, this is the reality of the condition. The condition is this median survival, so we need a drug that improves the reality of what we deal with, and not some fictional world that this person wishes we lived in. <laughs> so this led us to kind of think more critically about endpoints in clinical trials. We wrote this paper in JAM Oncology where we say overall survival in cancer drug trials, we call it a new surrogate endpoint for overall survival in the real world. Here's our argument. The purpose of drug development is to approve drugs that improve outcomes for people in the United States. I think that's why we have the FDA. It's for the citizens of this country, for the people who live in this country. It's not for idealized patients who live only in clinical trials. It's for actual Americans. Most cancer drugs have marginal benefits. A marginal benefit in an ideal population may have no benefit in the United States population because we are older and frailer. And so survival in trials may simply be a surrogate endpoint, just like tumor shrinkage is a surrogate endpoint for survival in the United States. And we actually think that unrepresentative trials should utilize the accelerated approval mechanism and have post-marketing commitments to show they actually improve outcomes in the United States and not just get carte blanche approval. FDA standards. I think the standards for regulatory approval are quite low. It is now the case that a single trial with a nominally significant p-value of 0.05 can get you drug approval. It doesn't matter if it's one or two-tailed. The lowest the bar has ever gone was olertumumab, which had an alpha error of 0.19. What I'm trying to say here is that we are very permissive. Yes? It's a good question. The question is, what is a meaningful survival benefit? And I guess there's probably not a one-size-fits-all answer. Different people will have different ideas. ASCO and ESMO, the two oncology professional societies, have put out guidelines where they say, this is the kind of survival benefit we need, tumor by tumor, setting by setting, that we consider meaningful. I think people may feel differently. There may be a, a diversity of opinions. But the question is, um, how much should society support? At what dollar per quality adjusted life year you know, does something 
become outside of what society can reasonably offer. Or we could use that money and other, in another way, perhaps with the high blood pressure campaign and save so many more lives. So that's kind of the trade-off we face. But I think that's a good question. Um, I'll direct you to that guidance at the end. Okay, so I was saying, so the point, the first point I wanted to make was you only need one trial. You used to need two trials. In some fields, you still need two trials. But in oncology, you only need one trial. You need anomaly significant p-value. We've accepted very loose standards there. It doesn't matter if you improve survival or PFS. It really, you, know, you can get drugs to market both ways. And it doesn't matter if other trials in that same space are negative, which we saw with adjuvant sunitinib in renal cell cancer. All you need is one positive. So you can just keep testing it until you get your lucky positive. As just example of where the bar is, is this a positive or negative study? Okay. This is neratinib in breast cancer. The endpoint here is not overall survival on the y-axis. It's invasive disease-free survival. There are two curves here, but the difference between the two curves is so small, I cannot shine my laser pointer between the curves. And there's an old saying in oncology, which is you can't give the plenary session at the national meeting if you can't fit a laser pointer between the curves. That's, that's the bar. Okay, but I have a shaky hand, so I can't. Um, this is not survival. This is an endpoint that has a weak correlation with survival. The benefit is marginal. Th thousands of people are tested in this clinical trial. These are the kinds of studies we're running. This drug comes at great price. 41% of patients who take this drug have grade three or four diarrhea. This is an increase in seven stools per day over baseline or diarrhea requiring IV fluids, hospitalization, or interfering with activities of daily living. And grade four diarrhea is life-threatening complications. So that's 41% on neurapative versus 2% on placebo. It is a highly toxic drug. It doesn't improve survival. It has this sliver of IDFS benefit, which you don't even know what it is because it's such a obscure surrogate endpoint and yet it leads to regulatory approval. I show here three Kaplan-Meier curves from, on, from recent pivotal trials in breast cancer. One of these is a negative trial, one of these is a positive trial leading to a drug approval, and one is a positive post-marketing commitment for a drug that had accelerated approval. Can anyone tell me which is the negative trial? A, B, or C? Which is negative? C is negative. That actually looks the most positive to me. Uh, and actually B is the post-marketing study and A was the one that led to regulatory approval. I think they have a problem in breast oncology chasing marginal benefits. Okay, so we performed a thought experiment which we published in Nature Reviews Clinical Oncology which was the following. Um, imagine I just went in my spice cupboard and I just took made gel caps of all of the things in my spice cupboard. And my parents are from India, so they come by and put a lot of spices in there. I don't even know what they are, okay? But there's lots of things in there. I mean, I have hundreds of things in my spice. I don't even know or ever use them, but they're there. And I can put them all in gel caps, and I can deliver those gel caps in each one in a mega randomized trial of 1,000 people, big randomized trial. So I can find any sliver of benefit if there's a sliver between the two arms. If I run 100 trials and I accept a one-sided p-value of 0.05, as my statistical significance of all these spices which are inert, how many trials on average will be positive by chance alone? Five, okay? That's our thought experiment. So we ask, if you're a drug company and you just tested inert chemical compounds in phase three trials, what would it cost you to get that one success, if that's the bar for regulatory approval, a one-tailed P of 0.05? We took this one estimate of the cost of running a phase three trial in oncology, which is $22 million. Here we show it across a range of potential costs. 
And here we calculate what is the break-even point in revenue per approved drug before it is actually profitable to test an inert trials agenda. And if you use one trial, the break-even point was 440 million. If you use two trials, it was 8.8 .8 billion. If you want to use a two-tailed p-value, it's 880 million. But in all cases, the amount of revenue you actually make per drug that's approved is higher than this break-even point with one trial. So we suggest it is theoretically possible for a drug company to take inert chemical compounds and turn a profit in the current regulatory system. Um, we don't actually think anyone's doing this. I don't think they're that bad. But I think it actually does explain why there's so many redundant duplicative trials for agents that have no single agent activity, that have very low likelihood of helping patients, and yet we see trial after trial run of these drugs, as we saw just this weekend. So I took, the, I took these two issues, this neratinib issue, this issue of like low regulatory standards, and I kind of made this point that it's a very common sense point, which is that if US drug regulation allows companies to make billions of dollars from toxic marginal products, if you buy your kid a BMW for a D plus, why should he or she strive for A's? If you're gonna make billions of dollars from just getting a drug on the market, do you have any incentive to make a good drug? You just need a drug to get on the market. That's all you care about. What incentive do you have to get the A? If somebody told me you'll get a BMW for a D plus, I would no way I'm gonna shoot too high. I mean, maybe a C, just to look, get a little clearance, but I'm not going for an A. A key opinion leader fired back. Look at the five-year benefit of neratinib. Do you prescribe AIs? We have a chance to help those with the worst outcome. And then I said, five years was not the primary analysis. It has massive 25% missing data. Distant relapse and death are the most important endpoints, and there is a trivial difference at two years. Oh, and then I added, we can't keep looking at trials in non-pre-specified ways and cherry pick time points on the curve that look best. Okay, this key opinion leader fires back. Indeed, the primary endpoint was a positive hazard ratio 0.66. Missing data was due to an excellent updated analysis. Does it make sense that if an updated analysis is excellent, there would be missing data? I don't think it does. I think this is a crazy sentence, but nevertheless, somebody liked it. Um, <laughs> It is online, some people like everything. Uh, but a hazard ratio of 0.66, I think this person misses the fact that what if I told you I can give you a hazard ratio of 0.98, you would tell me what are you talking about? Because a hazard ratio does not convey benefit in terms that are meaningful, i.e. how much longer will the patient live with, without experiencing disease progression or live without experiencing disease progression. This is from a nice paper on hazard ratios. It's kind of a unidimensional number that's very hard to explain to patients. Then I finally ended this little waste of an hour with, is it hopeless to think we can aspire for more in oncology than this, or are we condemned? And here's what I pointed out in that slide. The rate of distant recurrence or death on neratinib was 5.2% of patients on placebo and 3.9% of patients on that toxic drug. That's 1.3%. That means 74 people have to take this for one year to prevent a distant recurrence or death. Assume that the drug will cost 10K per month. And you know I've already told you why that's a fair assumption. It's given for 12 months. Then it costs $9 million to prevent a distant recurrence or death, but 29 people get grade three, four diarrhea for free. $9 million to prevent a distant recurrence or death, that's not even a dollar per quality. This is unsustainable by any nation in the world. Even billionaires could not sustain these kinds of drugs if it was just a nation of billionaires. That's why I say, is it hopeless to think we can aspire for more in oncology than this, or are we condemned? I said you could assume, this was prior to the drug approval, that it will cost 10K per month, and then sure enough, Puma announces it will be priced at a higher than expected 
10K per month. But it was expected because that's just what drugs cost. They cost more than the last drug. All right, in the last few minutes, I want to talk about a few solutions. I want to talk about one common class of solutions and argue, perhaps heretically, that I don't think it's a true fix. It sounds good, but I'm not sure it really gets at the root cause. And here's this class. These are solutions that have to do with dose and waste. OK, let me take you through it. One group made this observation that some of these cancer drugs are packaged in certain size vials. But patients tend to have an average BMI of, or body surface area of 1.73 or 1.8 um, meters squared is the average body surface area. There's a, people come in certain sizes. And they ask that for the average size person, if you have vials of this size and you want to dose that person according to the drug label, how many vials do you need? And say for this hypothetical drug, which I think is nabpaclitaxel, you need four full vials and just a little bit of the fifth vial to dose this person. And so you end up wasting the top part of that vial, right? And so they say, what is the wastage of all this little vial spillage? Because many of these vials are single-use vials, or there are rules about you can't split that dose into two, to give to two people. So they say that added up all the people who may get this at $76 million for this one drug. And they do it for a bunch of other drugs. OK, so this is making the point that what about that little bit that you're wasting? Policymakers should therefore explore approaches that would reduce or eliminate paying for leftover drug. That's the argument. Here's another way people talk about saving money. Low-dose abiraterone with low-fat meals, non-inferior to standard dose. Turns out drug absorption can be affected by like what you ate, and how much fat content it had, et cetera, et cetera. So perhaps for a drug that's approved at full dose on an empty stomach, if you eat a low-fat meal, and you can take less of that drug and have the same bloodstream dose kind of idea. And so they've tested that, and you know they have some promising results. The reason I think these solutions won't get you too far is this. Two medical students commented about that wastage article. I'll just read you the second comment, because I think it hits the nail on the head. I suspect that the cost savings proposed here are grossly overstated due to the simple fact that the cost to manufacture the drug is essentially unrelated to the cost of the drug. The drug companies are selling their intellectual property and pricing the drugs to provide a certain number of treatments based on what the market will bear. This is a cute paper, but the prices for the treatments would simply rise in the years it would take to establish systems to reduce waste. Waste should be reduced when possible, but this article is hyperbole. And this other student wrote, increased regulation would result in decreased waste, but increased cost to pharmaceutical companies who would charge the same amount for a smaller dose. I think there's nothing that would stop them from doing that. And when they got wind that some researchers planned on giving their pills with or without food or whatever and giving them less pill, this article came out. Science hinted that cancer patients could take less of a $150,000 a year drug. Its maker tripled the price of the pill. That will show you for giving less. The analogy I like to use is this tub of popcorn at the movie theater. What do you think it costs to make this tub of popcorn? Two cents? Three cents, really? And then the cheapest substance on Earth? And maybe two cents for that liquid that they pour into it, which I don't even know what it is. But whatever that is, they, they call it butter. OK, they give you a giant thing. You're going to waste some of this. Unless, if anyone here has finished this, you know, talk to me after this. Uh, you, I'm going to get you some help. But uh, it's, a giant, it's a giant bucket. You're going to waste some of this. Now, and they're going to charge you $12 for this bucket. It's a lot like the pharmaceutical company. They have a monopoly. They can charge whatever they want. You can't go anywhere else. It's actually maybe better than the pharmaceutical company because you can actually say no. Uh, it's not life or death eating this popcorn. 
Okay, so now what if somebody comes and says, we're gonna pass a law in this state, says they can only serve it in smaller cups. They're just gonna charge $7 for the small. Are they, you know, they're just gonna look at their revenue and just crank up the price on the small until they make the same amount of money. It's not really gonna solve the problem. All these, you know, so it's a cute idea that you'll save this waste, but it's not fundamentally gonna solve it. They'll raise the price. And what if they say, what if somebody else comes along and says, we will actually provide meals to people waiting in the ticket line so you can get a small instead of a large. This is like the taking it with food or something. You won't have the craving as much. They just crank up the price until they get the revenue they want for the few people who still want to have some popcorn. We tried to outline some solutions, or actually before I get to that, I just want to say how we summarize this. We say, this is a paper we wrote in Nature Reviews Clinical Oncology, a, a letter in reply to some comments we got uh, for a big article we published on cost of drugs. We say, focusing predominantly on wastage is unlikely to provide durable solutions to the problem of high drug prices. Previous work has shown that the cost of manufacturing anti-cancer drugs is low. For instance, Hill and colleagues have found that formulation and packaging including a 50% profit margin for four FDA-approved drugs would price those drugs at $128 to $4,000 per person per year, but the annual price of these drugs in the US are $75,000 and $140,000. So it's a lot like movie theater popcorn and soda. It doesn't cost that much to actually manufacture these pills. Second, because drug prices are not linked to the manufacturing and packaging costs, manufacturers could adjust the prices to offset potential cost reductions associated with changes in vial size, personalized dosing, dose rounding, dose banding, or eating it on empty meals. And that's precisely what they've done. So what do I think might actually be really more durable solutions to this problem? One is, I think the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Service should be allowed to negotiate the price of drugs. They are one of the largest purchasers globally of the price of drugs. They now can neither say no to FDA-approved drugs, which have ever lower standards to be approved, nor can they negotiate the price. That is not a market. That is like wearing handcuffs. HHS could permit state Medicaid agencies the ability to decline to pay for some low-value cancer drugs. Massachusetts applied for this permission to have some control over the for formulary, but HHS declined that experiment. If, as many believe, states are the laboratory of experiment, states should be given some flexibility to experiment and try actually saying, we will not pay for regorafenib for colon cancer, not at any price, because the benefit is too marginal and we have to take care of sick indigent patients in Medicaid. I think that's one thing people forget. Um, as you spend money on low-value, high-ticket items, you inherently make a, a sacrifice. You either cover fewer people on Medicaid, and these are not rich people. These are people usually making less than $25,000 a year for a family of four, or you decline to pay for services with huge return on investment, like giving basic blood pressure control. And there's a whole bunch of things we don't do as a society, like having better housing and social support and all these other things, because we're paying for these drugs. There's a bunch of states that have transparency laws about explain why you're jacking up the price of the drug, explain where the price comes from. I think that's a good step. I think it may not be a solution in and of itself, but it could provide data that may someday be used as a bludgeon to get the right solution. I think we have to eliminate tactics that the industry uses to delay generic drugs. This is another talk in and of itself, but there's something, for some drugs, there's programs like REMS to monitor for severe adverse effects um, that are held on different patents and that allows them to pro propagate their patent. We have to reconsider the patent length. We have 14.3 years of average exclusivity on a cancer drug. I mean, that's an arbitrary number. Is that the right number? Is that the wrong number? Should it be different based on how good your drug is, how innovative your drug is? Perhaps there's some flexibility in that. The amount of time the patent is given 
is a form of regulation. That's not a free market. Governments give companies the exclusive right to, right to manufacture this. Without the patent system, you know, it's like Eli Whitney's The Cotton Gin. You see one, you can just rip it off. You need the patent for the monopoly. Why do we have to give them the same one-size-fits-all patent length? Drugs administered in a doctor's office, the doctor gets a percentage markup of the cost of the drug. If I get 5% off the top of something, let me put it this way. If I'm very hungry and you are gonna order pizza and you'll only let me eat 5% of the pizza, I'm very hungry, what size pizza will I recommend you get? Extra large, right. I'm not gonna recommend small. I only get 5%, I want the most of my 5%. Similarly, we have incentivized doctors to use the most expensive treatment option by paying them a percent markup of drugs infused in their office. It's total lunacy. And yet, we tried to reform this a few years ago and it was vehemently fought by professional groups. They have all their all sorts of reasons. But there's only one real reason that's obvious to everyone. Um, we have to pay for drugs somehow proportionate to their value. We don't need novel ways to do that. Impartial groups conducting cost-effectiveness research analysis is the way to do that. The cost-effectiveness analysis cannot be conducted by the manufacturer. It's hard to conduct a cost-effectiveness analysis if you've not measured the endpoint you actually care about, like survival. But if we do those things better and give them better data, impartial groups can come up with very good estimates. There's this section of federal law that allows the United States government to use patented inventions without the need for licensing if they pay, quote, reasonable and entire compensation. And Amy Kapinski and Aaron Kesselheim have written that this could actually be quite a fair amount of money you pay, the cost of R&D and perhaps a healthy profit. And it would still be cheaper than many of our cancer drugs. Why don't we utilize this option? Finally, I suspect we need a federally funded biotechnology company, a so-called public option pharmaceutical company, when we have federally funded research leading to drug products like CAR-T, the fruits of NIH dollars, we have to spin it off to Novartis. They get to keep all the profit. Why don't we just develop, do the final mile? This product was made in someone's lab. All it needs is scaling up. A Couple more studies to, to get it to approval. We subsidize the most high-risk portion of R&D, and then we get none of the fruits of the labor, or a very small amount. I think it's like a $20 million licensing fee. The last thing I will say is that any solutions to the cost of high drugs must be tested prospectively. I think it is naive to think that you can think of a solution in a very complex system and know for sure it'll work. You have to implement it in some staggered fashion, maybe randomized, maybe some experiment, natural experiment, and check whether or not it actually does what you think it does, whether or not people are so clever they find a way to circumvent it or actually you know, manipulate it and take advantage of it. But I think current lawmakers seem unable to even consider any solutions. It's the reality. I just feel as if that, and I haven't read the whole proposal from this morning, but this was as of last night. Okay, I'm happy to take questions. Yeah, uh, but I guess the, I think the first part of the question is like, what can each of us do? Well, that's like the, I think that's the, one of the key questions. Okay, I guess I would say I understand that not everyone here will become researchers. But I think if you become a researcher, we need more people to do this research. That's one thing I think we do need. We need people who have some common sense, who are not deeply financially conflicted with the industry to counteract the juggernaut of public opinion and data that is churned out by essentially the industry's marketing machine, which is a lot of specialty-driven medicine. So we need you desperately. If you have any skills like this, stay in academics, do that. The second thing I'd say, specialize. 
everyone wants to do this kind of reform from general internal medicine. And I love general internal medicine. I loved it. I think it's a great thing. Or family medicine or primary care. That's great. But we need somebody who has the technical knowledge of orthopedic surgery, of cardiology, of oncology to start to do the reform because specialties are sucking huge amounts of healthcare dollars on many interventions that are of dubious value. Okay, three. In the patient encounter, I would say, um, like in the doctor-patient relationship, if you're just a practitioner, what should you do? Uh, you can no longer, I believe, trust any of the major guidelines, ADA, ACC guidelines, blood pressure guidelines. You have to know the data yourself. Like the job of the 21st century physician is very, very difficult. You have to always be skeptical of a guidelines recommending some particular drug where 50% of the people who wrote them are being paid by the manufacturer of the guidelines. You have to look at it critically, ask yourself, were reasonable endpoints improved? Did this matter? We have to be like critically, critical readers. Okay. Yeah. Will we lose innovation if we lower average profit margins? I think the answer is no. In investors, or we should, somebody just tweeted this warning at me, investors, or we should call them speculators, have gotten used to 19% profit on revenue. Why should they be used to 19%? 10% is quite reasonable. Um, we have set unrealistic expectations in the market. Um, I think there, maybe that's not the pressure point to put the pressure on. I think the first place to put pressure on is just to make sure the drugs do what they say they do in people that look like average Americans. And the repercussion will be, the bar will be high. You'll be getting few drugs to market. And if you have some fair negotiating on the back end, you'll probably end up lowering profit margins. Profits are high because you do not actually have to make someone better off to get a cancer drug on the market. You merely have to change the radiographic appearance of a tumor by 30 percentage points or more. That is not something people feel, necessarily. Uh, that's too low a bar. And we've done a lot of work that I didn't show you, but basically we show that it would be one thing if they show that on the entry to market, and then like two years later they show survival benefit. But for most of the drugs, they never show the survival benefit on the back end. They're never pulled from the market. I think we have a lot of regulatory capture in this space, just like with all the regulatory systems. If anything, one would argue that if you incentivize good drugs, pharmaceutical companies would retool their entire R&D towards pursuing more innovative options rather than just this glut me too mentality, squeak out another one month PFS. I, I wouldn't like use the profit as the lever. You want, I mean, you want the industry to pursue profit. It's not bad that they pursue profit. In systems where people have no profit motive, Often they get very lazy. Uh, I think we've seen that in, you know, in our own lives. You want them to pursue profit, but you have to make every regulatory thing incentivize what you want for that profit. So if you want the profit, you've got to make a drug that really improves survival. You've got to take more risk. You have to be more innovative. You have to be more novel. You know, put the incentives in a way that their productive motive is pulled towards what the incentives are, and then let them make a profit. And then the reality is they probably make 10% or 15% profit. But even if they make 20% profit, they must be making really, really good drugs then. Make it that way. Um, but what now we have is that just getting on market allows them to make any profit they want. And it's like that kid giving them a BMW for a D plus. There's just no incentive for work for the A. And so it's up to, you know, I don't blame the, I don't blame the industry. It's like blaming a tiger for being a tiger. It's, it, it's blaming us for not incentivizing the tiger to do what we want it to do. It's a public failure. Yes, that's a good question. So have you seen any impact from this? That's a good question. I guess I would say, like, <laughs> somebody told me that, like, I, I, I alternate between moments of being, like, extremely optimistic, extremely pessimistic. I'm always extremely pessimistic when I see the latest, like, actual new FDA bill and I see all the problems with it and how it just perpetuates these problems. But I'm always most optimistic when I see dialogue happening in, like, unprecedented ways. So, like, 10 years ago, when an oncology study was published and it was a marginal drug that cost a fortune, 
Was there any voice of dissent saying, hey, this costs too much, this trial is flawed, there's something bad here? And the answer is, I think, almost none. There's almost no outlet for dissent. All the journals are semi, you know, you have to keep it in line with the journal standards, all of the publication outlets. Now we have Twitter, we have social media. I see lots of junior oncologists really taking people to task. Yesterday, this, you know, aspiring radonc resident in Alabama, Birmingham, just decimated this New England Journal paper that was published on the weekend with like a series of tweets. Uh, uh, you see that in a way you have never seen before. So I think part of it is like trying to persuade people. All right, well, thanks for having me. I'll let you go. Take care. You've been listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy. I've been your host, Vinay Prasad. If you like this podcast and you like this episode, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. If you have the time, write a comment. If you want to give us feedback, you can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session, or you can send an email to plenary session podcast at gmail.com. We like to know what you're thinking. What could be, be better? What topics could we cover? Um, how can we improve? Finally, Plenary Session owes a debt of gratitude to Kiana Klossner, Audrey Tran, and Ian Straley. <laughs>